The presenting sponsor of the Millennial Politics Podcast is Tomka Designs, a company that I personally support. Tomka was established by two aid workers and a fashion designer who were sick and tired of seeing Western brands exploiting the people and places where clothing is made. They literally traveled the world to dig deep into fashion manufacturing, visiting fabric mills and factories, and handpicking the most ethical partners before a single piece of clothing was made. The best part about Tomga is that, aside from being a positive impact business, their designs are stunning. If you're like me, you'll fall in love with their colorful prints and impossibly soft, eco-friendly fabrics. If you go to www.tomgadesigns.com, that's T-A-M-G-A Designs, you can try it out for yourself. And if you use the discount code MP15, our friends at Tomga will give you 15% off. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Brian Santamaria, Democratic Farmer Labor Candidate for Minnesota's 3rd Congressional District. Thanks for coming on, Brian. Oh, thanks for having me, Jordan. Yeah, we're really glad to have you. So for starters, could you tell us about your background and how it led you to a run for Congress? I was an actor and a writer and a comedy writer. I was at The Onion and then moved into advertising, eventually becoming a creative director, which is what I am now, I'm a senior creative director at a big corporation. Been through agency life, smaller client life, and then big internal client life. Um, Worked on um, some campaigns along the way, stayed politically active, and then uh, put a focus on storytelling and messaging. From there, was looking at the kind of trajectory of not just the last election cycle, which it was definitely the catalyst here for me, and I think you're seeing hundreds of people, thousands of people across the country, millions um, of people not necessarily running for office, but doing something. And, and, and before that, watching the Democrats win every issue and lose every message was something that just weighed on me. It's very frustrating to see these polls come out and see that the nation agrees with the platform, agrees with the objectives, agrees with the results, but the Republican Party keeps winning the message. That's on us. We need to get better at that. We need to start honing what it is we're talking about and really making the sale. And it starts with not backing off of what those issues and principles are. See too often people, Democrats being told to be happy with what they can get in the short term, be happy with this now, we'll fight for that later. But you can't ever make that case. You can't win that argument if you're not standing up and and talking about it and be ready to lose on being right. Could you elaborate a little more on Democrats winning every issue but losing every message? Because I think that's a very relevant thing, especially in the face of the DACA deal that's going on. Totally. I mean, that's a perfect example. You do polls nationally. It's a sizable majority of the country doesn't want to send 800,000 people who know no country but America to some other country, whatever that country is. They they were raised here. They, they are part of this culture. They contribute to this culture. And they're Americans. People don't want to send them back. Yet, for some reason, Republicans can craft a message around illegal, calling a human being illegal. They can craft a message around dehumanizing them by calling them aliens. And it resonates enough that even if they don't win that issue, maybe necessarily, they can leverage it to get the issue they want. You've seen recently here in January, you saw them leveraging DACA to fund $25 billion for a wall, or just to put egg on the face of Chuck Schumer and make the Democrats look like they're shutting down the government. And then the Democrats, of course, step right into it and back down. And, and after making a case that it wasn't them, that it was Trump, which of course, it 
was Trump reversing the DACA decision. It was withholding chip funding. And and, and it, it works. You know, we, we, we let them win that argument. And you've seen it not just in DACA, but you've seen it for decades now. Gay marriage was a, a great example of a majority of Americans who had no problem with anyone marrying who they wanted to marry. Yet they can weaponize a certain contingent of America and start winning an issue by calling it traditional marriage or something like that. Guns. 92% of Americans want universal background checks. I would think a sizable portion of that 92% doesn't even realize we don't have that already. Republicans continue to win the message on that by harping on Second Amendment constitutionalism. How are you trying to reverse that? What is the actual strategy? I think you have to have a strategy around how you win a conversation and how you hone a message and and hit that message over and over again. And that is part marketing and part passion. And when I say part marketing, I mean that when you think of, let's say Subway, Subway is what, fresh something? I I can't think of what their tagline is, but I know the word fresh, right? There's nothing fresh about Subway, but they've said it for so long that it works and and, and it's believed. That's what the Republicans have been doing. And I've always said in advertising that there's two ways you sell shit, you lie or you tell the truth. I refuse to lie. In my career, I've refused to lie, right? I've turned down cigarette companies because I've, t- I've told them that if you, want me to, if, if you want me to sell your product and let people know that you're a, a cooler, better tasting cigarette or whatever, maybe I can do that for you. But if you want me to convince people that, there's, that this is anything but a cancer stick, I'm not going to do that. What we have to do as Democrats is hold on to the truth because we know we win there on the issues. But we have to form that truth, not let that truth become a circular conversation of facts and statistics and get it into a nice tight message that people can resonate with. And do that on an issue by issue basis and not let people get distracted and be ready to lose on some things and be ready to give some conversational ground. Uh, The estate tax here, uh, Frank Lutz, if listeners don't know who Frank Lutz is, then great, good for you. Keep on living that way. Republican pollster um, who worked very closely with Karl Rove in the Bush administration. And he's, uh, no comment on his personality here, but he's the best in the world at what he does, at least in the English language. He does focus groups and he will figure out how to frame something, as George Lakoff calls it, framing an issue, and get people to agree with him. He found out that, you know, the estate tax, people don't really have strong views on whether an estate tax is good or it's bad. It's probably better because estate means you're rich and we should tax rich people. But if you call it a death tax, all of a sudden people hate it. You shouldn't tax death. That's crazy. Death is bad enough. Why would we make it worse? And it works. Like So now Republicans for the past 15, 20 years have just been harping on this death tax, death tax, death tax. And we just saw the estate tax, which is what they're referring to, get removed. We need to be able to combat that better and not get lost. What, what, what we tend to do is since we have the truth on our side, we think we can out-talk somebody on that. And we think that we can say, well, it's not really a death tax. It's a this, blah, 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 blah. blah. But no one wants to hear that noise. What they want is you to give them a nice tight reason to disregard what they've been told. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. So your district, I believe, a a Democrat... Hasn't won here since uh, uh, 1962, I believe, 50 years, give or take. I I think a Democrat hasn't won election to your house district since 1958. 58, Uh, okay. So I'm wondering what's so different about this year and what makes you uniquely fit to change that? Great question. I mean, I think the what's different about this year is pretty clear nationwide what you're seeing is people waking up to the absurdity that is the Republican Party and that what you may have thought this party was, what you may have been raised to believe this party's ideals were, are not there anymore. Currently, we have a representative that's voting with um, Donald Trump 98% of the time. 
Donald Trump lost this district to Hillary Clinton by a good 10 points. Eric Paulson won pretty handily, though, 13, 14 points. So we've got a lot of ground to make up. But that means that there's at least, uh, if I'm doing my math right quickly, very quickly in my head, about 13, 14% of our district that split their ballot. We need to get half of them, 7% or so, uh, 7% of the electorate that formally split their ballot to stop splitting their ballot, to stop giving Eric Paulson a pass on this and start making him own the votes he's cast. You know, he is a Trump crony. He is... Trump in the House. He's not even standing up and giving an empty speech like Jeff Flake is, right? Like he's literally just voting for what Trump wants him to 98% of the time. And that's a pretty easy thing for us to communicate. And I think it's a pretty, it's so easy that we don't have to communicate it. I think we're seeing a real groundswell of support here. I also think that the Democratic Party in general has a tendency to lean into candidates that feel safer, that feel conventional. And those candidates aren't necessarily the best equipped to win. I'm an unconventional candidate. I know I'm frightening to people who see us as a swing district. They want a safer bet. But what I bring is a fearlessness that the Democratic Party has been lacking, but Democratic voters have been aching for. You, you know, you've seen it more than once, and I think the manifestation of it, what we just saw with Bernie Sanders, was pretty clear and hard to ignore. So digging deeper into your campaign, what would you say your central message is and what are the top policy priorities for you? We started around our, our sort of rallying cry of let's do something. And I think that that comes from me and I think you, you're busting your butt every week putting one of these things on the air, is there's just millions of people across this country who I think saw democracy hit a brick wall and thought, holy shit, I should have done more. What was I supposed to be doing that I wasn't? And we all want to do something. We start with marching, complaining, and Facebook posting, and then it's, and then it's figuring out what it is. Your, what, what was your responsibility? What should we all have been doing? So let's do something. Uh, let's get active. Let's represent. Let's put that energy to good use. And from a platform perspective, what that means for us is starting with some of the core democratic principles that we've ignored or compromised on to the point where we lose the conversation before it starts. Family health, family leave, and a family income for me. And I call it a family pact. And again, that family is whatever family means to you. I've said on the campaign trail, it, for me, it's me, my wife, and my daughter. For someone else, it may be them and their cat. For someone else, it may be um, them and their ex-husband and their second ex-husband and their eight kids, right? Whatever a family means now that we, we all have the same problems. We're all trying to put food on the table. We're all trying to save for college. Uh, so when I say family health, Obamacare was a step in the right direction, but accepting that 11% of our population doesn't have healthcare is, is not okay. We need a Medicare for all system. We need a true universal healthcare system where we remove the profit incentive. Uh, family leave, we need to be making good parenting, good business. We, we, we need to stop incentivizing corporations to deny that to a family. And that's, it, it's important that it's for men and for women, because if a mother has a child and then is at home with that child for three months, if that's conventional, if that's what we're doing, is telling a corporation you have to let a mom stay home with your, your, the kid for three months, then what happens is what happens already now, and I see it all the time in our suburban district, is that a woman is less valuable to a company because they carry the liability of maybe having to leave for two months at any given time and the corporation can't really do anything about it. The woman gets passed over for promotions. The woman loses her place in whatever projects have happened while she's been gone. Now, if we start telling employees of all, of all identities that you, you have a child, you stay home with that child. You, that, that is your right as a human, as a, as a parent. 
then nobody really has a leg up on anybody else. It just becomes part of the corporate culture that this is what you're doing is you're fostering and raising good, strong families. It's obviously better for the community. And women start to get an even footing in a corporate environment again. And when I say family income, we need to be creating median incomes that you can raise a family on, that you can pay a mortgage off, that you can pay for college. And for me, that starts with smarter taxes. It drives me crazy to see a tax plan where we're continuing to funnel money into fewer and fewer pockets. The numbers that came out last week were out of, it's like 87% of the wealth made in 2017 went to 1% of people. And you don't have to remember what those statistics are to know they're really screwed up, right? What we need to be doing is creating income brackets that are progressively higher as incomes get higher to be motivating corporations to pay towards the middle instead of the top. It's not like we haven't done it before. If you look at the times in American history, we had strongest middle-class wage growth. That's what we were doing is progressive taxation. I think under Eisenhower, we had 24 brackets. The top marginal tax rate was in the 90s. And I'm not even proposing we go that strong, right? Like I'm more conservative than Dwight Eisenhower on this. We just need to be disincentivizing $25 million salaries, $50 million salaries, because that money's way better spent in the middle of the income slope. So looking abroad, something that Democrats get a lot of criticism for is weak foreign policy, but your site makes it clear that that is a big focus for you. I'm wondering what your approach to this is and how you view sort of the balance between the very controversial debate between privacy and national security. I think you're right in that Democrats get perceived as having weak foreign policy, which is... um, obviously the opposite of the truth. Republicans are the ones that tend to get us into endless wars, which should be the opposite of smart foreign policy, right? The objective is foreign policy of foreign policy is to avoid wars. And if we have them to end them quickly with the least amount of damage. And that's not to say that we are, our hands are clean on this, right? Like I know that Obama and drones have hard eyes for each other, but I think what we need to do is as a civilization, as a, as a, as a culture, like, start accepting the risks of the world that we have, assessing those risks and dealing with them with, I think, leveler heads. White supremacists kill more people in this country than Muslim terrorists do. Maybe that's where we should have more focus. Maybe like physician heal thyself before we start looking to other countries to bomb. I also think that if we could look at Eisenhower again, that he forecast this military industrial complex that sort of perpetuates wars, that finds a new person to bomb all the time instead of looking at our budgets and saying, well, maybe we can't afford things because over half of our expenditure spending goes to the military. Do they need it? Do we need a military that strong? Are there maybe other ways we could create security in our country? And looking towards what some of those issues are that we know are going to create instability. They already are in Africa. We know that we are destroying this planet. We know that we need to solve for that for the to, to save our species. And on my site, you'll see a moon mission for Earth that I propose. And what I mean by that is that we need to treat staying on this planet in the future as seriously as we treated leaving it in the past. That we looked up at the moon at one point. We looked at space and we said, let's go there. And we didn't know how we were going to do it. We just knew that we had to try. And we, and, and we got it done. Now we're faced with that reality down here that we are looking at this earth. We know we need to save it and we don't necessarily know how, but we know it needs to get done. But we keep taking that we don't know how as an excuse to not ever do it. So what I'm saying is what we did to get to the moon in the first place was put a whole bunch of smart people in a big room with a lot of money, see what they came up with. And we create that moonshot here right now to save this planet, join the Army Corps of Engineers and NASA. We see what we can get done when we make promises that we have no business filling. Uh, now, I, th- I, I think I 
I think I looped off of your your question about spying here, right? Like spying on on people. Yeah, national security versus privacy. We've got to protect personal privacy. I think one of the bigger problems we have in this country is we voluntarily give it up to corporations. Putting restrictions on the NSA and putting restrictions on the CIA and how much they're recording is a nice first step here. And relying on communities to speak up when they see things. You know, I think that most things are probably rectified or stopped because a uh, keen neighbor says something and not because somebody has sent a bad email. If we're really worried about our privacy, what we have to start doing is looking at Facebook and Google and um, what kind of restrictions we're putting on them and whether they're allowed to sell our information and whether they're not. And that and start treating the internet like the, I mean, dangerous place that it is. (laughs) Yeah. You mentioned uh, the threat of white supremacist violence. Uh, That was something I was actually going to ask you about. And I'm wondering, we haven't seen a lot of actual proposals for how to deal with that. It's Mm -hmm. easy to denounce it, Mm -hmm. but white supremacy is something very ingrained in our system. How do you actually tackle that as a member of the House of Representatives? Yeah, so you brought up something interesting, right? And we, we like to say they're two different things. The white supremacy that is burning crosses and uh, the white supremacy that's ingrained in our system. While I don't think people in our system who are maybe uh, uh, perpetrators of this are, 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 should get the same punishments as people who burn crosses, I think we have to start recognizing the issues as the same thing. What can we do in Congress is we can call white supremacy what it is, white supremacy. It's painful to think that this is a white supremacist society or someone is a white supremacist. It's even more painful to think that it, you might be part of the problem. But if it's the truth, then it's something we need to approach and come to terms with before we can solve it. And when we've got a president, certainly right now, that is a bigot, is a racist, seems to be proud of it, and a party that is complicit in excusing it, if not outright supporting it. That's white supremacy. You know, if you think that other races are are not entitled to the same freedoms or equalities that uh, cis white male is, then that's white supremacy. There's you, you can you can think of a softer way to say it. Bill Crystal did an interview a few weeks ago with somebody. Someone said, "What do you got to say about Tucker Carlson? You hired him on the Weekly Standard," and he he said something to the effect of that that may have been a mistake. And Tucker Carlson seemed promising when he was younger, and he was a good writer. And now he's his position on Fox News has become. Uh, he said, I'm not going to call him racist, but um, ethno-nationalist. That's stuck in my brain. It just like the, the, the echo of that ring just kept going through my skull because that is the problem with the GOP. And it's the problem the GOP has been carrying for decades that, that they won't come to terms with. That, that someone can be ethno-nationalist, but not racist. I'm not talking about racism here. I'm just talking about a nationalist that prefers one ethnicity over another. That's not racism. Like, bullshit, that's racism. I don't know what it takes in someone's head to think, have that kind of cognitive dissonance that you're allowed to be a conservative who just, I, I just think that this is a white Christian nation, that's all, and that we should, we should adhere to white Christian values and people who are white and Christian should be first in line. That's, <laughs> that's white supremacy. You know what I mean? You can call it something fancy. You can hyphenate your word and make it sound more confusing. Send someone to Google to figure out what you're talking about. But it's, it's bigotry. It's white supremacy. It's racism. So what can we do? Call it out. And we can be ready to lose the short term to win in the long term. You're going you're gonna to call someone racist and they're going to say, that's what you do, lib- liberal. You just call everybody racist. And you've got to be willing to say, when I see it, yeah. Right? We can't back off that. And what can we do to stop the curb of white supremacy 
nationally. I mean, aside from passing hate crime legislation, some of the obvious things, and that goes beyond white, just white supremacy and into protecting women and protecting marginalized groups and making sure that when we have equality legislation that the trans community is included in that, that here in our district, that um, uh, we have a big Somali settlements and that their, their faiths are recognized the same as everybody else's, but also to start treating white supremacist organizations and the organizations that fund and prop them up and the communities where they're percolating. I mean, the same way we would be treating Muslim groups that, you know, have, have hate filled agendas, uh, infiltrating them and prosecuting them and not excusing them. And when we, you know, understanding that a Confederate flag is a sign of hate to a lot of people. And, the, and educating people who, who I'm willing to give someone the benefit of the doubt that they've been raised in a culture where they, they were never explained why <laughs> that's such a bad thing. And, and showing a little bit of patience, but making sure that education is there, that this is, this is a sign of hate. And this is why if you're waving it, you're asking for an FBI file. Lastly, where can folks find you online and how can they get involved in your campaign? VoteSantaMaria.com is our site. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Getting involved in the campaign. So we have caucuses here in less than two weeks. Three-round caucus system here in Minnesota for the uh, nomination of the DFL. Going to the site, uh, filling out any of our forms there, telling me what you believe in there. We'll get that information. We'll get right back to you. We'll ask you what you're up for. You can obviously donate on the page too. We're not really pushing too hard for fundraising. We don't accept donations over $500. One of the goals of this campaign is really to prove that you don't need more money to work. You just need to work better. Campaigns right now, one of the big frustrations uh, for me before running was that they are run by money, right? Is that if, we, if we're looking at a campaign system where you need money to win, the way to get money is either to get corporate donors like Eric Paulson does, or to get max donations rich people. Uh, the max donation is $5,400 for an individual. A couple is double that. So if you can take $11,000 from one couple and $20 from somebody, that guy's $20 isn't even worth your time to ask for it. You just got to keep getting on the phone with richer and richer people to keep sending you those $11,000, which means we've got 1% of America that's dominating our elections, that's deciding who runs and who doesn't. So it was my goal here to run a campaign that showed that we can accomplish all of the impressions and engagement and activity uh, motivation that your money can by leveraging smarter ways to spend it, by leveraging footwork, um, and by leveraging volunteers. And you can get that. You can sign up to volunteer on votesanamaria.com. Okay, great. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really great to hear about your candidacy. Thank you, Jordan. And thank you for doing this uh, week after week. Candidates like me really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie. You can find me on Twitter at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.